Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julia Figueres. It's a big Russian week for your Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. A guest conductor returns, a soloist makes his debut, and we'll all need tissues in the second half. Welcome back to guest conductor Marcelo Leninger. Hello, Marcelo. Hello, Julia. Thank you so much for having me here. It's so nice to have you back. It's wonderful being here. And Blake Puglia, you are making your debut. Yes, I am. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful. Um, so let's jump right in and talk about these two huge Russian pieces, starting off with you, Blake, and the Violin Concerto by Tchaikovsky. Yes, Marcelo, you can be part of this, too. (laughs) Um, This was a piece that had a tortured birth, shall we say, after it was uh, put out. Edward Hanslet called it long and pretentious and said, brought us face to face with the revolting thought that music can exist, which stinks to the ear. And uh, I think that we're both going to agree, we're all going to agree that he was kind of wrong on this one. Uh, maybe a little bit misguided. Yeah. Just just a little mistaken <laughs> on this. So um, do you know the whole history of this? Do you want to walk us through it? I think it would be great if you walked us through it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wrote it for um, one person who passed on it, and then he gave it to another person who passed on it, and then he finally gave it to a third person who finally liked it and played it, and then it got a really awful review. Mm -hmm. So what did they get wrong? What is it about this to their ears, Blake, that made them sort of lift an eyebrow? Well, I think that um, definitely during that period of time when you're thinking just in history where Tchaikovsky comes on the timeline and the type of violin concertos that were being commissioned and that were being played, this is something that really is is quite virtuosic. It's quite long, and you know, Tchaikovsky is is definitely no stranger when it comes to embellishments and definitely kind of drawing lines out and really repeating over and over, um, just in different orders and different ways. But I think that's what makes him so delightful. And I think in the concerto, perhaps a lot of things they were kind of c- clicking into or that they were bothered by is that. He basically, he has, you have the entire first section per se, um, that bef- bef- between one orchestral tutti and the second major orchestral tutti. And then you have a little subsection, then the cadenza. And then basically he repeats that entire first section again, just in a different key. And so that alone makes you kind of think like, where are we going? And then right at the end, just as you're about to collapse from exhaustion, he throws in a little coda at you as well, just to keep pushing it further. So it really is quite long. And But I think that nowadays we, it's such an example and display of virtuosity that I think we're so kind of in awe about the spectacle that we don't we don't really think of it that way anymore. Help, help, help us out here. What was getting written? What other like violin concertos were being written at the time of Tchaikovsky's? If I can think correctly, I mean, if you want to jump here too, I mean, Dvorak would have been coming before that. There would have been Lalo. Lalo, exa- yes, absolutely. I mean, probably the time is Sarasate and kind of show pieces were really becoming like small little virtuosic things, um, but not these kind of gargantuan concertos. Exactly, and, and also um, because, you know, the, so some, uh, some of those pieces, they were kind of uh, um, happy and, um, you know, not really intense philosophical pieces. Um, when Tchaikovsky comes with this huge piece, which has a huge emotional content, 
um, that was also not the norm mm -hmm. for that for that period. Of what what was going on in terms of violin literature, not along the fact that the piece was difficult to play. Period. Yes. Um, and I mean Tchaikovsky didn't really grasp the violin playing that well, and so a lot of things were just you know quotation unplayable for some of the musicians of that era. And in fact, wasn't uh, I think he saw a performance of the Lalo, mm -hmm. the Symphony Espanol, and that's what ins inspired him to write this piece. I believe you're right, yes. Which would make a lot of sense, too, because Lalo, I think, also got criticism for that. I mean, it's five movements. It's also a huge display. It's quite long. It's quite lengthy. And that already was kind of pushing these boundaries. And then Tchaikovsky decided to jump on board and write something even longer and even more technically demanding. So uh, I didn't, you know. <laughs> you know what? There's probably some of it. It's a good thing when the pieces were rejected that time. That yeah, means exactly. the pieces are really good yeah. and survived 100, 200 years, right? Yeah, I completely So agree. many great pieces of music and art in general. It was just so badly criticized and people just didn't get it at that point at the moment that pieces were premiered or, or, or written, and today we just love them. You know, I think, I think about New Descending the Staircase, that just caused a riot. You know, people, <laughs> people saw that painting and they just, they, 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 and how about, you know, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring? Of Absolutely. So this is good, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, why? Let me talk to you about each of your parts that happen here um, and what makes it difficult. What makes it for you, the violinist, Blake, difficult? I think um, for me personally, I think it's kind of subjective depending on um, each individual player, but I think for me personally, one of the most difficult things about the concerto is just purely stamina. Um, it's incredibly physically demanding on the player to be playing for so much time. Um, and I think for me, that's definitely something that is you have to kind of work up to and make sure that you're actually exercising because you, know, you need that physical strength. Um, but at the same time, I think that what equalizes and what you kind of balances out the equation is that it's so rewarding musically because I find it such a nice duet between the violin and the orchestra. It doesn't really feel kind of like it's just a superior line or that I'm kind of singled out. It really is this collaboration between um, the orchestra as an entity and the violin as an entity. Uh, what, and about, what about you, um, Marcelo? for the orchestra, because I know the orchestra part is not easy either. So what had he done with the orchestra to make it a little rough? I, I have to agree with Blake. Uh, and, and, and of course, uh, yeah, the violin is almost nonstop playing, mm -hmm. except a few tutis here and there and some intermezzos. But uh, um, the orchestra has many moments of that, you, as you would expect in a concerto, which just accompany the soloist. But in this particular piece, there are a lot of moments that the orchestra is prominent, has main lines and the main melody, and the violin is just doing some decorations uh, in the background. So there is this back and forth of who has, you know, the main the main line, um, which makes challenging because you need to judge, you know, when you need to really provide that carpet of sound so the soloist can shine and when the orchestra needs to be a little bit more present. But in addition to that, I have to say something general about Russian music and, and specifically about this program um, is that there is such a fine line, and, and romantic of course, there is such a fine line of um, not being over the top sentimental 
And and that fine line is hard because you know you need to have a structure, you need to respect the Russian soul and kind of understand they have a different way to be sentimental. And so to be free, but at the same time to have a structure and not go over the top romantic um, is a very fine line and very difficult to achieve. Now, when we talk about this violin concerto, I know that this is one that the kids love playing, you know, and, and you know, the younger violinists like, like to play this. And it always strikes me as that's a very dangerous thing to do because of that very mm-hmm. thing that Marcella was talking about, that fine line. There is a fine line for you, is there not? Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's so funny that you say, like, kids like to play, and I would describe it as kids like to ruin, (laughs) because it becomes one of those things that, you know, for us is so overplayed and is definitely becomes kind of exhausting for us. I mean, I know even myself that in my youth, I I definitely took on the task of doing it at a young age, Um, and then I set it down for years and didn't revisit it until... I think I, I believe I was in my third year of college when I felt a little bit more emotionally mature to actually comprehend what the music was trying to say. And I think that that's, um, that's actually vital for a lot of music in general. But I think that because of that overuse of the concerto and because it gets overplayed, a lot of that gets lost and does get over overworked. So the emotional part, people try to draw it out. And there is something really special about it that I think you can understand that maybe comes with time. I would love to know what your second thoughts were. After having set it down oh. and then coming back to it, what were your second thoughts when you looked at it? I think my, my second thoughts were probably, um, wow, this really is hard. <laughs> because <laughs> it's, it's just, I think that that's like a natural progression as an artist and as a musician. And as we kind of grow um, from our youth into our adulthood, we, we see that music changes not from difficult passage work and not notes that are written on the page, but as a form of musical emotion, as expression, as really physical emotion expressed through audible sounds. And I think trying to extract that feeling from the piece is something that I definitely interpreted later. As I started to get older, I started to really feel the phrasing, feel the lines, feel the intent, the emotional intensity, and look past the technical um, complications of the piece. You were going to say something, Marcelo. No, just going back to the Tchaikovsky being overplayed, the violin concerto, but also very dangerously being over-recorded. Yes. Which is even <laughs> worse because then you have all these recordings that they have so many things that it's not necessarily, maybe is not necessarily what the composer intend or, or not... Uh, good musical choices or tasteful musical choices but then there's someone that buy those CDs and they listen that and they have that as a reference so then whatever we try to do on stage and whatever reading we'll, we'll have for that violin concerto if it doesn't match that full of liberties and free recording that someone got it um, you know we're very easily susceptible to criticism mm-hmm. which is it makes even more complicated. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Now let's talk about that because you know this is a this is a thing. Do you listen to recordings when you're starting to learn any concerto, or do you put them in a corner and leave them alone? I think that when I'm, I think when I first, wow, I don't even know. I I think that at this point in my life, and in my career, most pieces especially when it comes to violin concertos, I've either played or I've heard a lot. Um, So a lot of times if I'm learning a new concerto, I've heard it enough times just through school, through performances myself, 
that I won't necessarily, but I do like at certain points, I feel like after I've learned the piece or kind of gone beginning to end, there aren't, it is a nice point of reference to listen to artists that I respect and I really like their own interpretations of other pieces and mm-hmm. see how they would interpret something else that I'm you know, challenging and, and taking on. Um, of course, a lot of times there may be an artist who I, you know, live by and swear by their their playing, and I may hear a recording of something they do and just really hate it. I just don't like it, you know. But that just shows you it's totally subjective and, and individual to each person, which is how it should be. I'm sure, Marcel, you feel the same way about anything else, any other symphonies or any other orchestral works, that you may have a point of reference or someone you respect, but then it's so important and vital to take your own approach to that, you know? Yeah. And I like when you said about, you know, a, a form of research, because mm-hmm. that's how I feel. Of course, I grew up listening music um, my whole life, and I still do. Um, and um, I always get, I always feel it's so strange when musicians say I don't listen music, mm-hmm. because, you know, we're, why? Um, so I do listen recordings, um, and I keep doing it. I tend to listen recordings to, uh, f- from artists that I enjoy um, and they are respect, and usually they're artists from the past or someone uh, with a completely new, interesting view or in, on something, and I can give you examples. Um, but I don't listen as a form of learning a piece. I listen as a form of curiosity or searching or just you know enjoyment i don't study a score listening to um to a recording so give us a, wow. an example of of something that you've heard recently that gave you a new take on, on an old favorite i it, it's kind of a long story but to answer you uh you uh, answer very shortly there is a um the not so new, it's a few years already, uh, set of the Beethoven symphonies recorded by Pavel Yarvi mm-hmm. and the Bremen um, Chamber Orchestra. I am completely fascinated with that. And, and the reason why is they took, you know, a very kind of a classical, absolutely not romantic approach and respecting Beethoven's metronome markings. Which is um, which is a debate right there. People are still talking about what is right or wrong in terms of you know the speed or the tempo um, in Beethoven playing. So um, that recording, I you know I'm really fascinated. I really like it. So as I was reading up a little bit, um, somebody made a suggestion, and I, I thought it was um, it was it was intriguing. The idea that perhaps Tchaikovsky just is not good at concertos. His his he is only only one of his uh, piano concertos has really ever sort of made the grade, mm-hmm. and uh, there has been push and pull about the violin concerto. But mm-hmm. the violin concerto is so I don't know. Do you think maybe the concerto form is just something that Tchaikovsky had trouble with? I mean, I don't know. I mean, he that's very possible. I mean, I think he was a genius when it comes to everything else he did. So if he didn't wasn't perfect, then who is? Having some right? slack. <laughs> yeah. You know what I. I but if, for example, we talk about the violin concerto, and yes, it's too long, and, and many times it's played with some cuts, and um, um, and the last movement, some people, you know, debate if it's good music or bad music. I don't think I'm I'm not here to judge Tchaikovsky, <laughs> but you know, but the thing is, like the piano concertos, yes, the first one is the well-known, the mm-hmm. most recorded, played, and known. Um, but the second piano concerto is an amazing piece of mm-hmm. music. It is. And recently, um, I just performed the third piano concerto, which I think even Tchaikovsky didn't know exist. But uh, um, it, and, but that it's a it's a very interesting piece. 
it's not a easy. You need to make something special out of it. Um, it doesn't come very easy, uh, but uh, it's a very interesting piece. And the rock cover variations for cello. I mean, that is a beautiful piece of music. So uh, he did some good things. He, he, he didn't stink. No, he didn't <laughs> stink. I also think it's important to note that, like, kind of like what you were saying, that you know maybe maybe he didn't master the form in the way that we see so many other composers were able to like kind of execute it so eloquently but the truth is that i mean i would say the same thing that you know people could say the same thing about jd salinger you know about like how many things does if you'd ask someone what they how many books they can name of his they can probably name maybe two Mm -hmm. but you know he wrote a lot or four but you know it just depends i mean there are certain things i think certain people are notable for and there are certain pieces whether it's a painter whether you're a writer whether you're anything sometimes you know, one thing perhaps sticks. I mean, with Tchaikovsky, I mean, there's absolutely, like, ballets. I mean, fantastic. But, you know, and then, of course, when people stick to it, it gets played a lot, yeah. and then we overuse it. And you know? also so. melodies. I think yes. when we talk about melodies, yeah. just pure melodies, I think you think about Schubert, of course, yeah. as kind of a, a father or, a, you know, a king of mm-hmm. melodies. But um, Tchaikovsky's no behind. This man just created some of the most beautiful melodies mm-hmm. out there. And it's, great wind work. His, wind, yeah. his wind writing is superb. Yeah, he just knew what, yeah, he knew how to do that very well. So speaking of great melodies and things that get overwrought, let's move to the second piece, which is the uh, the Rachmaninoff Symphony Number no. 2. And like this particular, like it's, it's uh, the um, Tchaikovsky, this came out of deep depression, both, both pieces. Uh, moved the composer out of depression. This is also, I think, um, a bit of a miracle that this even exists because he just stopped, right, Marcelo? Yeah, absolutely. And um, in his case, was um, was something he never got out of it in a way because, you know, of course, he stopped after the disastrous um, um, premiere of his first symphony. Um, he was so bad received and he was so badly criticized in a moment that he was kind of the boy of the Moscow Conservatory yeah. as a pianist and as a composer. Everybody, he was the golden boy of Russia um, at that period. And then because of that uh, premiere, he was so badly criticized. And yeah, he just, you know, he couldn't compose a melody or, uh, and of course, not a, a, a piece. Um, and it was after seeking help and, and seeking, um, you know, advice and the help of a professional that he um, started composing again and then composed a second piano concerto. And, and, and of course, this symphony came more or less at that period. But the, the element of self-questioning, um, of not really being sure of himself, uh, as a composer, um, it was uh, it was something that you know followed his life until the end. And all his compositions, um, I, he was never really sure if it was good, if it was bad, if he achieved what he wanted to achieve. He kept revising and changing. I mean, he composed the piano concerti, and then he recorded, and he does things that he didn't write. Yeah. Um, so always doubt, doubting himself, um, which uh, it is. A th- incredible characteristic of him, but um, but it is a piece that basically you know goes from a very dark place to a wonderful triumphal fire. It is also, I think, a warning um, 
when we go through life to be careful of your words because the words both to Tchaikovsky for the violin concerto mm -hmm. and for Rachmaninoff for his first symphony were devastating. Yeah. And they really laid these men out. Um, this is also a piece that really walks that line you're talking about. And, and, um, and, in, and it's in every movement. Now the obvious one that it, the line gets crossed on is that third movement. Mm -hmm. yeah, never gonna fall in love again. Yeah. Eric Carmen. Always stealing from Rachmaninoff, but <laughs> but um, it the first movement really has uh, great opportunities for melodrama. It's first of all, it's long. It's very long, yeah. And um, the first and the last movement are the lo the longest. But um, it, it right away you have this dark introduction, um, but you have moments of so much beauty and and those melodies and um, you know you have the you know you have the dark and the light right in that movement you have moments of extremely beauty and almost hope you know in life and you have moments of you know he was really down and 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 dark and depressed but um, um, I think the first movement it's somewhat not and maybe even like the first five to ten minutes of that movement um, it is a writer's statement how you take that symphony and how you will, uh, what the read the reading of the symphony will be because easily you can overdo those melodies and just transform in something not really, you know, just kind of um, cheap effect in, instead of real deep Russian soul music. How do you do that? It's not simply a matter of taking it faster, right? No, it's how you shape it. Uh, it's dynamic, it's how you shape it, it's rubatos and how free you are. Um, I, I don't complain, I don't know how to answer that question. I think uh, what I try to do, and I'm not, I'm not saying that I achieved, but I, you know, just trying, is to, uh, is to remove myself from any kind of emotional situation um, that I'm feeling or that I went through and, and, and try to use that symphony as a form of expressing myself. All I try to do is really just trying to think about Rachmaninoff and about what he went through and what you know Russian music has to say anyway and not putting my own imprint or my own sentimental and you know. Sure, so he's the story and not you. Yes. He does an interesting thing, Rachmaninoff. He flips the pace of the second and the third. Usually you get that, you know, you get that, that uh, second symphony, the second movement rather is usually that, that lovely little romance. And the third symphony, the third movement rather, the symphony is something sprightly. He completely flips that and, and gives us the fast movement first and then the slow movement. And the fast movement is, is really light. It's very, uh, it's almost transparent, but it goes by so quickly. Yeah, very true. Can you imagine if the second movement, if the slow movement was the second, and then after that you have this scherzo, and after that you have that long finale? I think, um, you know, the placement of such melodic, you know, deep, slow movement uh, as a third movement is perfect. I'm learning Mahler's Sixth Symphony um, to conduct um, next year. And uh, it's, you know, Mahler himself was never really sure where to place the slow movement for that symphony. It should be the second or the third. And he conducted many times in different orders. 
So again, as long, even though we say we need to respect the text and we need to respect, you know, the composer's intention, but we also need to understand they're humans and and they doubt him, themselves um, in anything they did. But a lot of people have not respected the symphony. I mean, there are. It should be how long should it be about? Should we expect it? The, the full symphony? Yeah. The Without the repeat in the first movement, it's about 55 minutes. Um, about 55 minutes, and there are still recordings out there that are 35 minutes long. Yeah, but because of the cuts, there is a lot of you know um, different possible cuts for the symphony. Some of them that Rachmaninoff approved himself, um, so he was not totally against the cuts, but... Did he improve them, do you think, because he thought it made it better or because he was afraid that it wouldn't get played because it was so long? I don't know. I don't know. They did find a manuscript in 2004, I think it was, of, of this. But um, I guess they've never taken that manuscript and the, the things in that manuscript and incorporated them into the version that what well, we're going to hear with the Rochester Philharmonic. Yeah, because he, himself, he keeps revising all the time. But... Um, Hard to say why a composer would approve or not cuts or changes, and you know. Interestingly, um, I think when it comes to classical music, um, there is such a um, formality of how to take things, and and we need to we need to realize we are dealing with pieces that are composed by human beings, so. Um, you know, p when you work with a, a, a live composer, someone that just wrote a piece and it's live, and you have the chance to ask things, you, you'll be amazed how much flexible they are to change things, to adapt things. And so um, I think if, uh, um, if you go back to so, so many composers uh, in the past uh, and you say, would it be possible to do this this way? I think if you're not damaging the message and the structure of the piece, they'll say, yeah, sure, why not? Give it a try. Blake, are we two-stayed? Oh, no, I'm, I'm here. No, are, are we two-stayed with, oh, class, no. with classical music? Um, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, short answer, yes, I think so, absolutely. I think, you know, going back to what you were talking about with their things are written by human beings. I mean, I always thought it was funny when I was studying it in school, you know that the the truth is that classical, although classical music has grown from something incredibly intellectual and structured, and there's a lot of format to it, and it really is this beautiful kind of um, building blocks that we've expanded on this art form. The truth is that at one point it was just a form of entertainment. I mean, it's exactly what it was. I mean, there was no difference between, you know, what we would consider Britney Spears and what Mozart was back in his time. You know, and so. So much of these pieces, we also don't know, you know, that a lot of these these composers spent time on this music, but, you know, some of these pieces also, could, too, could have just been them being like, you know what, I really like this melody, I'm going to write a piece around that, or, you know, this was something that I'm going to do, and they just, you know, tanked it out and, and threw it out there, and yet now we're trying to analyze it in this, like, incredibly intellectual way, you know, but, you know, sometimes it's just... It just sounds good. It's emotional. It fits and it it feels great. <laughs> so so, what do you wear when you go and when you go out and you play solos? I mean, there's there's a discussion about getting rid of the tux. Have you gotten rid of yours? I mean, I'm kind of notorious 
for wearing different things. Oh, good. Um, I actually, I love telling people that last year I, I played the Brahms Concerto with Dallas Symphony. And when I went out, um, one of the one of the critics wrote that my pants looked as though someone had thrown up Jolly Ranchers all over my legs. Um, cool. Because I wore this these pants that had these like multicolored um, splotches all over them. Um, and it was actually a suit that was designed uh, by Alexander McQueen that I had, that was given to me by the London um, office uh, to wear at this award ceremony. Um, and the people, one of the critics absolutely loved it and another one absolutely hated it. Um, in San Francisco, I wore these um, gold, um, these gold lame denim pants one time. I'm just, I think it's fun to do that because I think that we're, we have to change it up and so many, I think that how I view it is that I'm 25 years old and if I was on the street or if I go to a club or a bar or somewhere in public and I meet a 25-year-old who's never been to a classical concert, they're probably going to feel ostracized if they go and see another 25-year-old in tails because they don't associate or that doesn't ring a bell in their head. Whereas if they see something kind of new, progressive, and fun, they're probably much more likely to feel inspired and feel included. And that's what this is about, in including people and bringing them into our world. I know that I'm very jealous that you have an Alexander McQueen suit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. It's pretty cool. I know I am very fortunate that I that I was able to get that. I'm, it's pretty rad. It's a very interesting discussion because mm-hmm. as much as people talk about um, about classical music being too stuffy mm-hmm. and trying to get classical music younger and more diverse, mm-hmm. the minute Yuja Wong comes out in one of those dresses, mm-hmm. the world goes insane. Yeah, exactly. Everybody melts down. Yeah. You know, I, I, I know this. People have been have gotten mad at pianists who don't wear jackets because the jackets are constricting and they wear vests and they mm-hmm. get shouted down. And that's a shame because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Absolutely. I could not agree more. I think that I mean, I I respect the wish of people like that, mostly because I understand the discussion. Um, I think that, you know, if sometimes if an artist comes out with something that seems incredibly garish or seems perhaps a little bit distracting, then maybe you can have a discussion of, is that enough? Is that okay? I mean, even if it is the personal response, the truth is that then, for me, my whole thought about it just personally is that then you're distracting from the main point, which is the music itself. And so I think that... There is a line that you can go across which says that you are exerting self-expression, you're doing something a little bit different and showing a little bit of personality, but not crossing the line where you're drawing attention to yourself as opposed to the music, which is what we're all trying to enjoy together. You know, I think that that's that's a difference between being self-indulged and kind of embellishing the moment. I think that's a really wise statement, and we'll be writing that down and putting it up on a a wall. Because, you know, you're here in service to the music. Yes, We all are, right? That's what we're here for. Um, Just to jump back to to the last couple of movements of the Rachmaninoff, because there's that third movement which was used for one of the soppiest songs that's ever been written, full stop. I'm never going to fall in love again. Anybody want to sing it for me? Because, you know, you don't want to hear me sing it. Um, I don't think us either. Oh, <laughs> you don't want to hear us either. He, uh, but it, his melodies, um, he really had a hand on this. Um, Rachmaninoff, he really knew how to create a tune, didn't mm-hmm. he? Yes, absolutely. And and he was criticized. That's, uh, you know, we're talking so much about criticism and you know, what you're supposed to do or what you expect to, uh, to do. 
and there you go. He's in a in a in a moment that people are writing music that were more modern, that had a di had a different quality in terms of you know structure and how he sounds. And then he he was writing romantic music basically. And there you go. He's being criticized for that. Mm -hmm. um, he was criticized because his music was too Russian, too Russian and too romantic. There you go. I, I know. Mean, it's, you Can't know, win. Can win. But um, you're right. I mean, he. Um, some of the melodies are so uh, incredible, be beautiful. I mean, the the third movement with that clarinet solo, and and how the whole melodies carry, and it's a long passage, so it's not a easy small tune. It's a long, beautiful melody, and uh, it is one of one of the magical moments in in uh, in the symphony. But because he was a great pianist, and uh, I think the way he um, probably the way his brain worked was uh, was with the piano. So um, you know clearly his orchestration and use of instruments and colors and all that. I think it comes from the piano imagination. How the chords go on the piano. What kind of harmonies you can produce. Uh, you know what kind of in in which register you have a, a, a you know a given melody. Um, so um, it's it's very interesting when you analyze in that in that way. And and again, you have to be so careful not to fall into the trap of that movement. You know, you had to throw eyeball the clarinetist and, and give him the warning sign, don't do it. Well, you know what? I'm a servant of the clarinet in that in that passage, so I'll, I'll just go with him. No, I'm kidding. No, it's, uh, you're very right. I Again, the fine line of being free and uh, but also letting the music speak by itself, not putting your, you know, your emotion. I mean, it's not about you. It's about, you know, the, as as Blake said, it's about the music. So, so the fourth movement has been described as the dance, but sometimes it's got this really martial march to it. You know, it's, it, you can hear it. It gets played in either way. So which is it for you, Marcelo? Is it a march? Is it a dance? Or is it a marching dance? You know, <laughs> all the above. You know, there is one thing about this symphony which is uh, an element that is present in every, in all the movements, which is that this era, this dear uh, era, era. Um, and and that basically that dark element, um, it's present in the whole in the whole symphony. And so, in the last movement, um, in, in 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 forms of variations or in in major key or hidden here and there it's present throughout the whole the whole piece and the whole in the and the whole movement so it's never a happy dance i think um even though the end is triumphal and it is in a major key um it's never a happy dance it's always you know there's always a little bit of a dark element to it so um we are going to be hearing this uh this the uh, Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto played on a very special violin, Blake, and I wanted to ask you, what will we get to hear? Um, yes, I, I'm very fortunate that I get to play on this wonderful violin um, by a maker named Renarius del Jesu, and it was created in 1729 in Cremona. Um, it's a beautiful violin that I have on loan from the Canada Council for the Arts, which is a uh, a subsidy program from the Canadian government that has a collection of rare instruments that they lend um, to a certain amount of Canadian players. And I'm fortunate that I have this one, and that's what I'll be playing the Tchaikovsky Concerto with Marcelo on.
How long have you had the, the violin now? I've had the violin for uh, four years now already. And it's it's one of those things that I tell people that every every few months I feel the change still in the playing. You know, uh, the, the violin really does respond like a living creature. Um, and it does really take time to learn how to manipulate and how to work with. You know, people think that you're going to be given a Grenarius del JC or you're going to be given a Stradivarius, and all of a sudden you can play really well. And it, it's just not the case at all. It, it really does take time. Um, I tell people, I said, you imagine that you're given the, imagine you're given a, a palette, an empty canvas, and a palette with every color, every hue imaginable. You still have to paint the picture. You know, it's not going to paint itself for you. And that takes so much time. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of change and experimentation in order to really achieve that. Do you have to give this violin back in a certain amount of time, or do you get to keep it for a while? Um, I, w I have it for at least another two years, and then um, we're going to see what happens. And then I'm going to, you know, talk to the government and um, have a big smile on my face <laughs> and we'll see what happens i mean because th then you have to go through it all over again you have uh, to meet a new violin yes exactly it. which is you know it's i mean i think that no matter i i i wouldn't know personally because i've never tried them but i would only imagine there are a couple instruments in the world probably ever that have are, are just so pristine and sublime that there's no problems with them um, I think everything, no matter how good it is, always will have something that you're going to be able to find fault with when you spend enough time with it. Um, but I would, yes, I mean, the the thing is that I there are things that, you know, it's a double-edged sword. As time progresses, I feel like I get so much more comfortable with the instrument, but there's also limitations that I also find by working with the instrument after so many years. So, you know, it could be exciting to perhaps do something else, but I also love the instrument. I find it incredibly rich and, and deep and beautiful. Blake, um, have you let him play it yet? Marcelo, you're you're a trained violinist. Has, has he let you play the the Guanari? I don't play the violin anymore. I quit <laughs> a long time ago. I started in the violin and then and then I moved to piano, which I still play a little bit, and then conducting. But uh, the you know, violin. If you don't keep practicing, um, you lose really fast. It's, uh, you know, piano you can still fake a little bit. Yeah. Not in the violin. <laughs> I completely agree. So I, no Guarneri del Jesu for you. No, I don't even want to touch that to start with. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know he's insured, but it's, it's still exactly. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try. My sister is a violinist, and um, I was spending Christmas with her few years ago and she was practicing and at some point she put the violin in the, you know in, in the couch she went to the bathroom so I kind of look and say oh hello old friend and I say hello to you and I and I tried and I was just like as I never as I never played before it was terrible and she came running out of the bathroom screaming who is killing my <laughs> violin there go. I know she's like what's making that sound <laughs> yeah. exactly I'm going to thank you both for coming in and spending time with me this afternoon. I, I look forward to this concert. I know it's going to be very, very special. Um, Marcelo Leninger and Blake Pouillot came in and chatted with me today. If you would like information about the new Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra season or the current season, as it is, you can go to rpo.org. I'm Julia Figueres, and this podcast is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting.